<clears throat> Good morning. If you and I were to decide to write a biography of someone, we would probably state their parents' names, maybe their grandparents' names, the town or city they grew up in, perhaps the schools they attended. But then we would pass by all of that and get to the more interesting stuff. But as you turn to the New Testament, Matthew, the very first book, is, in a sense, writing a biography of Jesus. And he starts out by giving us about 40 names. 40 names, most of whom most, most of us could not, could not place. And more than one person has started a New Year's resolution of deciding to read through the New Testament in a year, which you can do by reading five chapters a week. But I know one person who started out and hit, of course, Matthew chapter 1 first and fell on the rocks of all those names, crashed and gave up the very first day. Yes, you're looking at him. No, it wasn't this year. But not long after I became a believer, that happened to me. And then I was, as I would read through the Old Testament, oh my, are there genealogies there. One book has nine chapters of them. <clears throat> Why? Why did Matthew start his book the way he did? Because to us, it does seem boring. It seems like a dreadful way to start a book of any kind. Matthew starts with those names because of this. He is presenting Jesus as the longed-for Messiah of Israel. The advent, the arrival of the Messiah is the most anticipated event in the entire Old Testament. And the Messiah, hands down, is the most uh, popular or most spoken about person in the Old Testament. So Matthew is going to try to prove to us, in fact, he's basically have to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah. And in order to do that right from the start, he's got to prove two things. That, Matt, excuse me, that the Messiah comes in the line of David and even further back that the Messiah comes in the line of Abraham. Why? We'll look at that more. But basically, it was known by every Jew, and again, we'll look at why, but it was known by every Jew that the Messiah had to be in the lineage of David and in the lineage of Abraham. And if Matthew could not substantiate that right from the start, then Matthew, a Jew who was writing to Jews, the Jewish audience would turn away right then. They would know Jesus is not a qualified candidate unless he falls in those two lines. What I want us to see today is that Jesus is that long-anticipated Messiah. And one line of proof of that is in the genealogy that Matthew provides for us. In fact, his whole book, in essence, is demonstrating how Jesus fulfills the role of the Messiah. You may think, well, I already believe Jesus is the Messiah. 
So, why spend time thinking about it? But I would ask you, do you know why the Messiah came? Do you know what his job description, so to speak, was? What was he supposed to do? And did he do those things? So, even if you have always heard from your parents or Sunday school teachers that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, it is beneficial to all of us, especially in this Advent season, to know whose arrival we're celebrating. Advent means arrival or uh, showing up. We celebrate the fact that Jesus showed up that first Christmas. But we won't really understand Christmas nearly as well until we understand more about what the Bible says concerning the Christ or the Messiah. There are about 25 or 30 genealogies in the Bible. Only two are in the New Testament. This one, Matthew 1, and another one in Luke chapter 3. Let me give you a few ideas about genealogies to start with. First of all, genealogies were not written in the Bible in order to be exhaustive or complete, as we think of complete today. They had no problem leaving some names out. That, however, was not a mistake to them. It was not an error. To us, it would seem like a mistake. To them, they knew what they were doing. They knew they didn't have to cite every single name in someone's lineage, and so they most often did not. Secondly, genealogies do not appear in the Bible randomly. They are there for a purpose. Purpose might be to show inheritance rights. Might be to show who's allowed to be a priest and who wasn't. In fact, when the people came back from exile, one of the first things Ezra did was he wanted to restart the priesthood. And there were some people who volunteered themselves for it, but they looked through the genealogy records they had, and if the person was not in the line to be a priest, even though his heart was willing to do it, they were not allowed to serve in that role. Third, the word translated was the father of, like Abraham was the father of Isaac, or in the King James uses the word begat, it does not strictly mean was the father of. It's better to say, better to understand it at least, to say was the ancestor of. Yeah, that sounds kind of clunky to us, but that is more accurate. And as I just said, they can skip some generations. So this, for example, doesn't appear in the Bible, but it could. Abraham had the son Isaac, son Jacob, and 12 sons, but I'll just talk about Judah. It would be perfectly acceptable if we read somewhere that Abraham begat or was the ancestor, was the father of Judah. Wait. You're saying he could miss Isaac and Jacob? Yes. Why? Because the people could fill in a lot of those blanks themselves. They did not need to be exhaustive when they presented a genealogy. Fifth, 
Genealogies normally did not include the moms. There's not, not an insult intended by that. Genealogies, like I say, a lot of times are to establish records of who is allowed to own what land, and those kind of rights flew, flowed down to the male. Why? Because the sister or daughter had a high chance of marrying, and they could marry someone outside of their particular tribe. So when, for example, when Joshua conquered the promised land, God said, after he laid out the boundaries, he basically said, now leave these boundaries alone. Don't, if you're in, say, a tribe of Issachar, don't sell your land to someone from Nineveh or Reuben. The land was to stay within the family tribes. Well, how could that happen? They had to know who was part of those families and of those tribes. <clears throat> Finally, genealogies usually normally begin with the oldest person in the list, and then they move down to the youngest or to the one closest to us in time. So that's what we see here in verse 2, that the genealogy begins with Abraham, goes to Isaac, and on. Now, technically, Matthew should not have said the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He should have said the genealogy of Abraham, but he didn't. Matthew was a Jew. He was writing to Jewish people. He knew what he was doing, and we'll look a little more at that momentarily. One more, one comment about Gospels. I don't know if you realize, but the Gospels are not given to us just so we can learn a little bit of information. Not simply given to us just so we can read and make that part of our devotional life. That's great, but that's not their primary purpose. The primary purpose of the Gospels was to present who Jesus is and what he did and then to call people to respond to that. It is not, they were not written simply to, as I say, convey information. They were written to persuade. And I hope that as you hear Christmas sermons, today's as well as any others or any time you read the Gospels, that you will not walk away simply saying, oh, that was interesting, I learned something new. No, walk away having decided to respond to what it is you read. John chapter 20 makes this abundantly clear. I didn't make a slide of this. But John said, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, in the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means Messiah, He's the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you can come to have eternal life. That's why John wrote, he said, and that's why all the Gospels are written. <clears throat> Matthew's Gospel begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Now, to you and me, that doesn't sound very interesting. That just kind of, you know, sort of ho-hum, and then let's just go on to the next verse. But as I say, Matthew is a Jewish man. He's writing especially to Jewish people. And a first century Jewish man or woman who read or who heard Matthew 1.1 would immediately notice several things that are out of the ordinary. We would not. We don't have their background and their knowledge, but they would have. First, the first person in that verse, in that sentence, is Jesus, then David, then Abraham. Now, they highly revered their elders, and so normally they would put Abraham's name first, then David, and Jesus last. But that's not what Matthew did. He knew the rules. Matthew is setting out to do something quite different than what was expected. One thing he's doing by putting Jesus first is he's implying a very audacious thought, and that is that Jesus is in some way actually more important than David and Abraham. Again, Matthew doesn't come right out and say that, but he doesn't have to. Jewish people would have known what he was saying and doing there. Second thing they would notice is, as I already mentioned, the genealogy of Jesus Christ would cause a reader to expect that he was going to learn about Jesus' children, Jesus' grandchildren. However, if you know much about Jesus, you know he wasn't married, he didn't have children. Chances are pretty high, therefore he didn't have grandchildren. So why would Matthew call it the genealogy of Jesus Christ and then start with Abraham? <clears throat> because here again, Matthew is, is upsetting the apple cart, so to speak, in order that people will pay attention and in order that people will begin to focus on this Jesus Christ. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, and it's the first title mentioned in this verse. Christ is the New Testament translation of the Old Testament word that get Messiah, that we translate as Messiah. Messiah means anointed, and in Old Testament times, people were anointed for special service, such as prophets and priests and kings. So the name, or excuse me, the title Christ and the title Messiah mean exactly the same thing. The coming of the Messiah, his advent, was the great hope for thousands of years among the Jews. Matthew is telling us here that the Messiah has come. He has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, let's learn more about this figure of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, when you put it all together, it teaches that the Messiah would wear three hats, or he would have a threefold job description. He would serve as a priest, he would serve as a king, and he would serve as a prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, no one could serve in all three roles, especially no one <clears throat> should take upon himself the role of a priest. 
God did not look upon that hap uh, yeah, happily, cheerily at all. Because anybody trying to serve as a priest, even a king, would diminish the idea of the priesthood. Well, when I first started this message, I was going to just give us a bunch of verses and try to see if you could use the, the opportunity of discovery and see if you could see what it was that not all the Jews did see from these Old Testament passages. But I was reminded that you guys only get one shot at this, and I've looked at it many times. So I'm going to go ahead and give you the main points and still look at the verses. First of all, the Messiah serves as priest. He is the son of Abraham, and we're going to see what Abraham has to do with the role of a priest. In essence, I'll go ahead and tell you, the priest would offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of people. When Jesus came, he offered that sacrifice, but guess what? He himself was the sacrifice. That thought never crossed anyone's mind in the Old Testament. But we can go back and look at the Old Testament and see some hints along that line. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus serves as a king because he's the son of David, and one day he will rule on earth as king. Thirdly, Jesus serves as a prophet, revealing God's will to people, revealing God's nature and character to people, and telling people how to properly respond to him. So, as Messiah, Jesus serves as a priest because he's the son of Abraham. Now, I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and then verse 7. This is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, so your family at large, your extended family, and from your father's house, that would be more his immediate family, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be or will be blessed. And then verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. This, especially the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, are known as the Abrahamic covenant. Why? Because God made a covenant a deal, you might say, with Abraham. Now, if you read, if you paid attention as we read that, you probably noticed that God committed himself to do various things for Abraham. He didn't ask Abraham to do anything in return. He never said, Abraham, if you do these, I'll do these. No, this is God out of his grace 
out of his love and kindness, kind of tapping on Abraham's shoulder and saying, boy, do I have some good news for you. Pay attention. I'm going to make promises to you that are just going to knock your socks off. <clears throat> okay, God didn't use those words, but that's the point. Look at verse 3 at the end of it. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, to us, that probably doesn't jump out at all. However, of all these verses, and they're all important, but it's perhaps those words are the most important words of these three verses. Why? Because although the Lord didn't spell it out for Abraham right then and there, the way the Lord would bless all peoples of the earth was with a, by sending a Messiah, by sending a Savior who would provide salvation for the sins of mankind. Now, this salvation would not be automatic. It's available to all, but it will only benefit those who see their need for God's salvation and who turn to him in humble contrition and repentance. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, this verse is repeated in Galatians chapter 3. And I'd like you to turn there if you're able to. Galatians chapter 3. Here again, an absolutely critical passage. Start in the middle of verse 6, or with 6, middle of the sentence. It says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You'll notice that verse 6, a good portion of it, is in quotation marks. That's because it is a direct quotation of Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6 is also one of the most important, in fact, might be the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. Why? Because it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him by God, is understood, as righteousness. Abraham believed God. God gave him the standing of being righteous. In other words, God forgave his sins. We would say in the New Testament times, God saved him at that point because Abraham believed. Not because Abraham obeyed, because Abraham believed. And so this verse back in Genesis tells us the important truth that, <clears throat> excuse me, that salvation, even in Old Testament times, only came about through faith. Not by the people trying to do their best, not by being related to Abraham or David, no. Salvation has always been by God's gracious action and our faith in response to that. In fact, still going on Genesis 15, 6, this verse is so important that it's quoted not only here in the New Testament in Galatians 3, but also in Romans 4, twice, and in James 2, 23. And in a sense, if you walk out of here with nothing more than this today, please know salvation, even in Old Testament times as well as today, 
always has been and always will only be by faith, by our placing our trust in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. So that's the verse 6 of Galatians 3. Let's continue. Know then that it is those of faith, here it is again, who are the, you might say, the true, the genuine, the real sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify or forgive the sins of the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you see what Paul did there? He said that salvation was preached very early on, and that message was that in Abraham all nations would be blessed. We find out later that blessing is centered in the Messiah, in Jesus, and in his death on the cross for our sake. So verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed Blessed with salvation, that's the context, along with Abraham, the man of faith. <clears throat> Let me read for you one quick um, other example from the New Testament. This is in Acts 3. You can just write the reference down. Acts 3, 25. Peter is preaching after he healed a lame man, preaching to a bunch of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And he says, you, y'all are the sons, that is the inheritors, the heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. What covenant? Where he said to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Why is Abraham important? For various reasons, but this one, perhaps most of all, that it was going to be through Abraham that the Savior would ultimately come. The Savior, the Messiah. <clears throat> As a priest, I mentioned already, he would offer the sacrifice for sins, and lo and behold, that sacrifice would be himself. You know, Buddha never sacrificed himself nor has any other religious figure in the history of mankind sacrificed himself on behalf of people and all the more on behalf of people, as the Bible tells us, who are enemies, who are acting as enemies toward God. <clears throat> Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah would be despised and rejected, a suffering servant dying for the sins of his people like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The Jewish people could read that and see what was being said, but they just weren't able, it seems, to grasp how you could meld that idea with the next idea, and that is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the king. He's the son of David, and one day he will return to earth and rule the world. Um, 
rule the world because he and he alone deserves to have that position. <clears throat> we'll look at that again in just a moment. Just for your blanks, I'll say, letter C, he is the legal heir, H-E-I-R, to the throne of Israel. We won't look at that today, but I put it there originally so you can fill out your blanks. In fact, if you are doing the blanks, I'll go ahead and give you the answers. Number one, Messiah. Jesus' genealogy reveals that he is the promised Messiah. A, he fulfills the priestly saving role as the son of Abraham. B, he fulfills the kingly role as the son of David. C, he's the legal heir of the promises. And D, he fulfills the prophet role. And then, if you want, while we still have this, I'll give you the rest of the blanks because we won't really get to these today. I say that Jesus' genealogy also demonstrates his unchanging character or the unchanging character of God. A, his genealogy reveals God's mercy, B, God's judgment, and C, God's faithfulness. <clears throat> Look a little bit at the idea of Jesus as king or Messiah as king. This was the, the kind of idea the Jewish people latched on to. They had been conquered by the Roman Empire, and they had to pay taxes to Rome. That just irritated the Jewish people to no end, that they were not free, and on top of that, they had to pay their captors. They were very primed to read and to hear about a Messiah who would come and overthrow the government, any government that was over them, and would begin ruling in a righteous and godly way. <clears throat> Once again, they, they clung to that, although they missed the other part of <coughs> excuse me, uh, being a, a savior and a sacrifice. Fight you quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here again we're going to see a covenant. This time it's the Davidic covenant. A covenant God made with David. 2 Samuel 7 beginning with verse 8. And I want you to especially pay attention to the word forever. Verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, same promise given to Abraham, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 10, I will appoint a place, a land, for my people Israel, just as Abraham was promised a land. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Again, the Jewish people really longed for that to happen. It certainly was not true in Old Testament times, nor was it true in New Testament times because we find out that the Messiah came the first time and accomplished certain things, but he's going to come back a second time and that is when he will rule and be the king of kings 
and Lord of Lords. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God's making kind of a play on words here. By house here is meant a lineage, a, a lot of descendants, a huge family, same as Abraham was promised. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now this at first is referring to Solomon, but then refers to someone much greater than Solomon. Because verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, the temple, and Solomon did that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God would establish Solomon's throne because of David forever. That did not mean Solomon would live forever, but that the right to rule would be there and would be there forever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Again, speaking of, of Solomon, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times the Lord uses the word forever in his promises to David. David, I'm sure, got the point, and sure enough, the Jewish people, by and large, got that point as well, and that's what they were really looking for. <clears throat> when I then turn to Luke chapter 1, and I'd like to see, show you how this shows up in the New Testament. Here again, I, I want you to try to pay attention, especially to the promises that are made. Luke chapter 1, verse 30, an angel was speaking to Mary. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, that is, the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Letter D is the prophetic role or prophet. In the Old Testament, Moses spoke at one point in, from Deuteronomy or in Deuteronomy. And he said, someday the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. He'll come from your own countrymen, your own Jewish brothers. And when he comes, Moses said, listen to him. That's not just a you know, general statement. Moses was saying, this guy's going to be special. We find out through reading more, Moses is referring to, to the Messiah. And in fact, we, we're not going to look at it, but you could see when Jesus was baptized. The Lord God spoke from heaven. And what did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's what is being referred to. God's word 
Going back here to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Well, just quickly to end up, God's, excuse me, Jesus' genealogy also describes, or excuse me, demonstrates the unchanging character of God. His genealogy, and we'll look at more at this later next week, Lord willing, reveals his mercy, his judgment, and his faithfulness. Well, looking at all this, it's kind of easy for us to understand why the Jewish people didn't put it all together. Nevertheless, when Jesus came, he got mad at the religious leaders, not because they didn't put it all together, but because they refused to listen to him when he pulled it all together. When he showed them that he and only he could qualify as the Messiah, he and only he did the works of the Messiah, and yet, by and large, the Jewish leaders hardened their hearts against him and refused to believe. Well, I hope you don't refuse to believe today. We've encountered just a few verses. I know it's kind of fast and maybe verses you're not as familiar with. But the challenge remains, especially this Advent, this Christmas season. Jesus has come. He has told us who he is. He has demonstrated to us who he is. That Messiah works or serves as a prophet, serves as a priest, serves as a king. The final question is, will you humble yourself before him and serve him? I'm going to pray at the end. I invite the elders to come up. And if you would like someone to pray with you, if you'd like to understand more about salvation, we'd be thrilled to help you. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank you that from eternity past, you planned all these details about the Messiah. You gave revelation many, many times about who he would be like, what he would do, what his character was like. And Lord, even though people didn't put it all together back then, now we can. Especially with help from the New Testament, it's crystal clear that Jesus was and is the Messiah. So, Father, as we celebrate Christmas this month, I just pray that you would help each one of us get a deeper understanding of who Jesus the Messiah really is, a better understanding so that we could usher in or usher out from our own hearts greater thankfulness, greater praise to you as we contemplate what you have done on our behalf. Our Father, we commit each person here to your care this week, and we ask and look forward to how you're going to answer people's prayers as the days come on. We present all of this to you in Christ Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.